extra material to cover today since I wasn't here last week. I wrote a sermon for last week. I shared a little bit of it, but I got a little bit more. Um, just so you know, usually this is, this is what it looks like right here. One page, two page. You got it? And let me show you something really neat tonight today. You ready? One page, two page, three page, four page. And that much laughter there. I thought you guys would be excited about that. Um, so we are in a new series. It's called Exodus. And if you're new here, here's what we mean by series. It just takes us a little bit more than one week to talk about it. In fact, we're going to talk about this book of the Bible. It's the second book of the Old Testament. You've got Genesis, then Exodus. And um, we're going to talk about it for the next two months. So all of August, the rest of August, and then all of September. And then we'll start a new series in October with our Saturday night service. You'll hear more about that. We'll talk about that a little bit later today as well. And so um, this book is... Um, Part of what's called the Pentateuch, okay? Uh, you can say that with me, try it. You ready? Pentateuch. Wow, y'all sound like Bible scholars. About four of you did, actually. Uh, Pentateuch. And so here's what uh, the Pentateuch is. It's um, this five-book series, like, you know, Harry Potter, you know, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, those kind of things, right? Uh, um, Percy Jackson, whatever, whatever your series are, right? So this is this five-book series that all tells one story. So one that... Difficult parts about Scripture, and one of the dangerous parts, by the way, is something called proof texting. And that's where you just pull a little bit of a clump of Scripture out and then um, prove your point with that clump of Scripture, whether that's to use your Bible darts in your marriage to convince your spouse they're wrong and you're right. Maybe you do some of that. Um, Or maybe uh, you pull out a really weird clump of Scripture, like there's some in Kings, uh, First and Second Kings, where these bullies make fun of Elisha, and he calls down a she-bear and comes in the, the uh, this is a prophet. He calls out a she-bear, and it comes and mauls the kids, right? And you go, see, that story's crazy, and it is crazy. And because of this story and its craziness, I can't believe that God is good or that the Bible's real, right? And you pull out a clump, and then you um, talk about that clump and either use it to prove your point that's good about God or prove your point that's bad about God, and it's called proof texting. And um, the interesting thing about this Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's, uh, you know, uh, the Pentateuch, these five books, is they were never meant to be read in little bitty clumps. Like, it wasn't that you're supposed to read one verse and teach on it. It was, you got to see the whole picture. And so one of the things we're going to do over the next several weeks is slowly go through the book of Exodus um, and look at the whole picture of the Pentateuch, these, these five books, and um, more specifically, the whole picture of the, the Bible and what we would call the gospel. So here's what the Pentateuch is about. It's about God keeping his promises, okay? It's about God declaring something to be true, declaring it will happen, and then fulfilling that thing. So a couple of words we've been working through the last couple of months, because uh, working through Genesis. One is the word covenant, right? Which just means God always comes through and keeps his word, regardless of our behavior, regardless of what we do. It's, covenant is different than contract. Contract has stipulations. Covenant just means God's going to do what he says he's going to do always, right? And so we see that through scripture. That's why we love baby dedications to go, God, we are trusting that you are going to uh, uh, turn at least face towards you, right? Like we're trusting that she's going to know you and she's going to declare you as Lord and Savior. And then there's going to be a day after she declares that she's going to show the old her, the old life going into the water and the new life coming out. That's a covenant we are entrusting to God. God, you are the one who saves. You're the one who redeems. And so we are covenanting with God in his promise and his trust in that, right? And so the word we've been looking at is covenant. The other one is the word providence. And providence literally means this. God is always, always, that's an important word there, bending and shaping all things. 
bending and shaping all things. Our bad decisions, our bad you know, plans, our good plans, whatever it is. Our families, our pain, our sorrow, our, you know, whatever that is. Our resume. God is bending and shaping all that for our good, always for our good, and for his glory. And the two things I've kind of told you I want you to see in this are one is an eyeball, right? When you hear the word providence, I want you to see an eyeball, meaning God sees all things. There's never a time that God doesn't see all things, right? He's always seeing everything, all the time. And not just an eyeball, but a hand. God actually not just sees all things, he's actually working in all things. Now, one other interesting thing that we could talk about today in terms of that definition of providence is I want you to add kind of another icon to it, right? So you got an eye, meaning God sees things. you got a hand, meaning God works in things. But I want you to see a heart, like, you know, a heart symbol, right? And God cares and feels the pain and feels the sorrow and feels the joy and all that. So not only is God seeing all things and working in all things, in the middle of all those things, as he looks at our life, looks at our world, he has deep compassion and many times deep sorrow for what's going on. So you're going to see that today. And so when we look at this Pentateuch, these five books, there's kind of a a story uh, in every one of the categories. You see it in Genesis, see it in Exodus, about a bigger story. You know, the story that you're going to see throughout the scriptures, and that's why I love the Jesus Storybook Bible we just gave to the Martins, is on every single page from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's only just one story and one hero in every single one of those pages in that book all point to the hero, which is Jesus. Jesus, you're my deliverer, as we just sang. And so the story of Exodus is the story of the Pentateuch, and the story of the Pentateuch is the story of the Bible, and the way that we define those things is by calling it this word. This will be review for some of you, and my marker's not working. So you won't be looking at that. And so here's the word that we would call it. It's the word, the gospel, okay? Gospel, gospel, which means good news. But here's what actually um, that plays out and how it looks. And there's four different components to it. You ready? The first one as we look at the gospel is creation, creation, right? That means in the beginning, God created all things, all things. He just, he created it, created all things, right? So um, when you think about this, God created all things. You see it in Genesis. God creates a good plan. God creates a perfect story. God has a perfect design, and that's creation, first part of the gospel. Then the second part that we talk about is the fall, okay? And here's what the, the fall means. It literally means that even though God created all things, set it into motion, um, engaged with us, and invited us into a story, right? Even though all that happened, um, we decided that we liked our plan better than God. So the idea of the fall is that we basically want to take back control. You bring in me. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. This is Christian. Y'all saw him last week. He tells good stories. Perfect. Okay. Three people clap for you, Christian. Do you want to thank your mom and dad for clapping, I guess? <laughs> so here we are. Gospel. Got it. Thank you. Now let's get caught up. Creation. God makes all things, right? And when we think about God making all things, you go, I don't know that I believe that, right? And then I would just offer this. Well, then what do you believe? How'd you get here, right? How in the world did that happen? Like, how in the world did we all show up here, right? So if we all got here, we had to get here somehow. There was nothing, and then there's something. And best plausible explanation is that something greater than us, more intelligent than us, um, set the world in motion and created it. And you would go, well, if there's a creator who creates things, why would he create? And just offer the same thing all the time. Same reason you decided to have kids. Not because you thought life would get, be easy. Not because you thought it would fix all your problems, not that you thought it would take care of you when you're old, right, those kids. It's because you actually wanted to be in relationship with those kids, right? And so God creates us, one, to, for us to be mesmerized by his creation and then to be in relationship with him. But instead, what happens for us is, second part, the fall, which literally just means 
God, we like our plan better than yours, right? So God sets this world into motion. He puts it into play. He invites us into it. And what we basically say is, nope, God, we don't want you in control. We want to be in control. God, we want to be in charge. And as a result of that, what happens is we turn our backs on God and walk away. And so there's this big disconnection in the whole world. And you see it in Genesis with Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel. And then with uh, all sorts of the Tower of Babel, you see it with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's this whole pattern over and over and over again. You bring me another one? Uh, perfect. This is Christian. <laughs> Boy, we're off to a good start today. Thanks, Christian. So, got creation. Now you can see it. And then you got fall. That means we just say, God, we like our plan better than yours. We walk away from you. And there's this big chasm between us. And if that's the end of the story, it's really, really pretty devastating. And as you look at our world, this is kind of how it works, right? You look at just the damage in our world. And man, I wasn't here last week to kind of talk you through just the brokenness of what's going on, right? We'll talk about it today. Like, like the evil, the hate, the fear, like our world, and you, we know this, right? And we'll see some resolve in it today. Like, it is really, really broken. People are really, really broken. Suicide rates are extremely high. Violence, particularly with guns right now. Like, I understand there's knives and all that kind of stuff. But the idea that someone can walk into a place, right, and do all sorts of damage. Like, our world is broken, right? And I would argue and offer that this isn't the world that God designed, God actually says there will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. We believe that will happen, right? That's God's covenant. That's God's promise. But right now, that is not the world we live in. Why? Because we go, God, we like our plan better than yours. We want control. We want power, right? And so we live in this world where we are so vulnerable to those who want to take all the power, want to take all the control, and frankly, we're not even sure how to respond, right? Do you get more guns to protect yourself? Do we get rid of guns altogether? I mean, what do we do in all this? And it literally is going, this is not the world God designed. And it's just broken. We know that. Don't have to be a Christian to believe that. And so I would argue God created a world, set it in motion, invited us into his world, right? And instead we go, nope, we like our plan better than his. And right now we are reaping what our world's sown, talking about violence, environment, whatever, whatever category you want to go. There's something wrong here. They go, yep, there, there's something wrong. And if that's the whole story, which is what most people are kind of living in right now, this pain and sorrow of what in the world is wrong? What do we do, right? If that's the end of the story, no wonder we have so much depression and hopelessness. But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God created it. We walked away, and yet God and his graciousness redeems us. That word redeem in the scriptures means just to buy back. Literally, he comes and buys us back. Here's how I'd point that out, right? So if we become enslaved by our own decisions, what God is, does is he literally buys us back out of slavery. We submit ourselves to our own plans, which enslave us, which create all sorts of pain for us, right? And then God comes in and buys us back, invites us back into it. Now, the, the issue here is we have to be willing to allow God to invite us back. He comes and he gives us the keys and goes, this is a gift to you. Unlock yourself from the jail cell. And some of us just go, nope, we'll stay here. We'll stay here, right? And so God literally buys us back. The Bible says the wages of our sin, that's a consequence, that's a payment, is death, meaning eternal disconnection from God. Our world is experiencing death in everywhere we look. The wages of our sin is death, but that same scripture says, but the gift of God, gift, gift meaning you can't earn it, you can't buy it. The gift of God is eternal life through 
Jesus. So Jesus, the hero of the story from the Old Testament all the way through, God is saying there will be a day when all things will be made right, and I will buy you back the story of the New Testament as Jesus shows up and proves that he's God and then pays the price for our sin by dying and then proves that all of what he says is true by coming back to life and then showing us how to get from death to life through this resurrection power. And so God comes in and redeems the world, right? So he sees the pain and he's bending and shaping all the pain with his heart and soul. He's bending and shaping all this for our good and his glory. I'm not saying God causes all the brokenness in our world. I don't think that's the case. But I do would say that God's not wasting the pain. Like he is a perfect steward. He's bending and shaping all these things and he's literally buying us back. But that's not the end of the gospel. In fact, as a result of buying us back, it's really neat. He actually... He redeems the whole thing, right? And he invites us back into that original story of being in relationship with him and living in this world the way that God created it. And what Jesus prayed in the New Testament is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God invites us back into the story and basically says, hey, you now get to participate in restoring this world back to what it was supposed to be. So the gracious thing about God is he not only saves us, he then invites us back into purpose that we get to live in again. And this is mind-boggling to me because he doesn't need us. It's not like we're better at restoring the world than he is. And yet, for some reason, God invites us into that participation. So I would offer, this is a real experience for us right now. Our world has fallen. And hear me, God's solution to restoring this world is going to happen through his people. So this is the, you know, the cute say, statement, be the change you want to see in the world, or, you know, Michael Jackson singing, it starts with the man in the mirror, or whatever it is. While those things sound hokey, the reality is God's plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth is actually through his people. So you're wondering, gosh, I just feel like every day I get up, punch the time clock, go to sleep, and just feel so mundane. The reason being is because you actually were built to participate in a much greater purpose. And it's actually to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's actually to invite God back into this world and then take him everywhere you go. And what's really interesting is he decides that's the way that by which he wants to redeem this whole thing and restore it. And you go, or I go, that doesn't, that seems really inefficient. That's a really inefficient way, God, to fix this, right? I would wholeheartedly agree. But you know what else is really inefficient? Having my kids help me with any project at the house, right? Every single project they help me with takes longer, slower. I mean, they were helping us make the volunteer board last week or the week before, and it took about twice as long as a result. I can't say it in the second service because I'll have some kiddos in here. But the reality is when they help me with projects, want to help me with projects, they never are really that helpful, right? I don't really need their help in a lot of that stuff. So why do I do it? Because it's not about the end. It's not about just achieving some project, or at least I've got to remind myself of that. Right? It's about actually getting to hang out with them. It's about being able to participate with them. You know this. Like, while it's exhausting, the interaction you get to have and the joy you get to see in your kids when they participate makes it worthwhile, right? So yes, God doesn't need our help, and it's pretty inefficient to allow us to be a part of it. So why in the world would we do it? Because he is a good father. And in the middle of helping him, participating in his plan, we are connecting with him and finding purpose and all that. So that's the story of the Bible. 
Therefore, that's the story of uh, the Pentateuch, and that's the story of Exodus. So, if you remember, uh, last couple weeks we've been looking at Joseph's story, and the same thing. In the beginning, Jacob had 12 kids, and it was cute and pretty, and immediately the kids are arrogant, and Joseph says, I'm better than the rest of the kids, and Joseph kind of starts jockeying for power, right? And the reason we know he's jockeying for power is because he actually gives false reports about his brothers to his dad so that he's the, the influential one. He's the one with the, you know, privilege, right? And so Joseph starts lying. The brothers get mad, and there's this whole mess here where everything gets so messed up that the brothers decide to sell Joseph. They're brother into slavery, right? Which is a really bad story. But all along, God is working in these places to uh, use Joseph as a picture of what he's going to do with our world to redeem, literally to buy back what was lost, to invite his family into Egypt with food, all those kind of things. So God actually redeems it through Joseph. So Joseph's broken, the brothers are broken, but somehow through that, God redeems it. And then he invites the whole family to come live in Egypt and have food, have a good economy, have comfort, have security, all those things inside of God's plan. And now we find them at the end of Genesis living and working the land the way that God originally intended. So here's the story. Now, what we see really early on in Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, is basically um, these folks, these Israelites, that's God's chosen people, are doing really well. They are being fruitful and multiplying. They have a good economy. They're getting along well, and it's a pretty picture of what a restored world would look like. Now, as all this is going on, there is a um, Joseph, you know, who had influence with uh, the government in Egypt. He is basically the vice president really, really well. Um, So one of the things that happens as the family gets older and starts to die off is Egypt gets a new king. And that king is very insecure and not doesn't remember what it was like for God to come in and provide through Joseph and his family. And so what the king does is he um, begins to fret and worry about his power, which is interesting because fear is probably, well, one of two of the great motivators to why our world is so broken and what happens in our fallenness, right? The fear of missing out, the fear of losing control, the fear of power or privilege. And so the king has a lot of power and a lot of privilege, right? And he goes, well, if the Israelites continue to grow and get bigger and stronger, they will eventually overthrow us, right? Right now, they work for us. They're our slaves. But if they keep growing, then what's going to happen is they're going to overthrow our government, right? They're going to revolt. And so the king decides that he's going to do something really interesting. And he's going to ask all the midwives who, the, you know, the, the ones catching and birthing babies, right? Um, he's going to He's going to ask all of them if a boy comes out, you know, when they see the genitalia, to kill those boys every time. Because what he's convinced of is if you take away the boys, you take away the strength, and you take away the ability to procreate, then they will no longer get strong, right? And essentially what will happen is these women will be brought into the Egyptian realm through Egyptian men. So you see this whole thing happen, and one of the neat things that I just point out here is the midwife's going, nope, we're not going to do that. So they continued to honor God. God continued to bless them in the middle of a regime that says murder the babies. It's a lot to consider and all that. And so you see this whole picture happening. And here's what I just point out. When you have power and privilege, like the Pharaoh, the king did, you are going to do one of two things with your power and privilege. You're either going to push people down to oppress them, or are you going to use your power and privilege to pull people up? Joseph had power and privilege. And what did he do with it? 
He pulled the rest of his brothers up, pulled the rest of Israel, like all the Israelites up. He, he invited them in with his power and his privilege and his resources. So when you have resources, power, privilege, whatever those things are, you are operating in one of two ways. Either you are oppressing people who don't have it, or you're inviting people to the table, uh, inviting these people who don't have it to the table, right? And I just want to point out that from the beginning of time, definitely see it here in the story of Exodus see it earlier, definitely see it later, still see it in our world. There is this false belief, this Pharaoh had this false belief that somehow his genetics, his DNA, his upbringing, his pedigree was more valuable than the Israelites, right? His color of skin was better than their color of skin. His language was better than their language. His government was better than their government, right? And so he had this arrogant belief that somehow his power and his privilege was something about him being special and his people being special, and therefore the other people aren't as special, and therefore it's okay just to continue to push them down and murder them, right? So this is Egyptian nationalism. I want to be really clear here. That's what we see right here in Exodus is this, this guy go, we like our people, we like our color of skin, we like our race better than every other race. We are more valuable, and therefore, we will destroy anything that gets in the way of that, right? So this idea of any kind of, first of all, white nationalism is a, it's straight from the pits of hell. This thing you're hearing in your head that tells you you're better because of who your parents are, the color of your skin, is a lie straight from the pits of hell, and it's demonic. It is, it's just demonic, right? I mean, this belief that somehow you're extra special because of the color of your skin or even where you went to school, or what nation you were born in. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible talks about, which is in, in the Latin, you get the term imago Dei, meaning every single human being is made in God's image and likeness. Not people in your country. So this idea of white nationalism is demonic. And I just would even offer, just nationalism is not the picture of the gospel. It's not the picture of the Bible. Like, I'm not wrestling through even like this pledge of allegiance that we do to our flag, which I'm so grateful for our country and the freedom we have and not trying to take shots of that. But our allegiance isn't to a country. Our allegiance is to the God of the universe who created us in his image and likeness and invited us back to him. He redeemed, he did all the work, and he invites us back into it. So some of our brokenness is our arrogance in believing that somehow we're extra special. Like we're better than the six, more than six billion people across our globe and something has to change there. And the reason we get into this place is fear of missing out, fear of losing your privilege, fear of losing your power, right? And so you, you have one of two options in this. With whatever power, privilege, and resources you have, which all of you have some kind of power, there is a moment when you're the most important person in the room at some point. All of us have some privilege. You are breathing air today in a country where you can breathe that. And we have privilege right now and even getting to worship God, right? All of us have privilege and all of us have resources. And if God has given those to us, there's got to be a reason for it, right? And we've got one of two options. We can either use our power, privilege, and resources to oppress other people or invite them to the table. And I would argue that what Jesus did all the time with all the people was create bigger tables, inviting more and more people in. So as a church... We have a responsibility. I'm not saying we revolt with the government, we do those things. We have a responsibility to give them a picture of what a redeemed and restored world looks like, which is every nation, every tongue, every tribe, all matter to God. 
and therefore they should all matter to us. And so the opposite of this happens with Pharaoh, and he goes, nope, we're going we're gonna to move our race forward. We're going to move our nation forward, and we're going to oppress other people, and they literally start killing them. And these midwives start lying about it, and, and so Pharaoh's like, well, what's going on here? I have a better idea. Instead of killing them right, right before they are born or when they're born, right, let's do a different thing. Let's just throw them all in the water because babies can't swim. You understand what happens when we start focusing on our control and our power. It's crazy what we do when we're so set on keeping our power and control, right? I mean, there's things that all of us have done in some ways. We've lied about taxes. We've done whatever it is. Somehow we need to have power and control. And you've got this pharaoh in this moment who says, murder the babies, throw them in the water. And that's where we find the story of Exodus, a guy with all the power and control pushing people down. And one of these guys that happens to be born is this little baby named Moses. So Moses is born. The mom cannot fathom him dying, so she puts him in a, a basket. This is so messed up, right? Puts him in a basket and throw, puts him in the river. And the, the older sister of Moses watches it, the baby float down and not too far down the road. She sees it, that one of the Pharaoh's daughters, this is, he has about 60 kids, this king, um, sees the baby and can't imagine that baby dying. Makes sense, right? With compassion. And she goes, I have privilege. I have power. I have resources. And I can do something about this kid made in God's image. And she takes him and says, there's no way we can kill him. No. Moses' sister is watching the whole thing happen, and she goes and says, hey, I see that you found this baby, and I see that you have compassion for this baby. Do you want me to go find someone who can nurse the baby? And uh, the, uh, uh, the, the daughter so, says, yes, go find someone. And Moses' sister goes back, finds his mom, Moses' mom, and brings him back to the place where he now nurses. Really, uh, he's nursed and taken care of, so it's really neat. Mama's still in the picture. She's taking care of Moses in this really weird thing, you know, because God sees all things, God works in all things, and he's bending and shaping all things for their good and our glory, right? And so all that happens, and the next thing we see is Moses start to grow up as an Egyptian with all the power, all the privilege, and all the resources, right? But there's something wrong with Moses. He is deeply bitter and angry, so angry, so, so angry. He's watching the, his, his brothers and his, his family, like his original Israelite family, being persecuted and oppressed and murdered. And inside of Moses is this horrific anger. Remember I told you the first thing that usually leads us astray in this fallen thing is fear. The other one's anger. So Moses has all this anger, right? Because there are some real injustices in this world. Some of you have that anger, right? Anger towards abortion or anger towards racial inequality, anger towards gender pay, whatever it is you have, right? You have these, these real angers going, how dare this world feel that way? And you don't know what to do. And so you're screaming and you're typing in all caps, whatever it is, because you have these real legitimate angers, right? And so Moses has this real anger at the way that Egyptians are treating Israelites. And there's this really interesting interaction where Moses ends up being so angry at the way that Egyptians oppress the Israelites that he actually murders one. Which is what anger does, by the way. Unkept. Not surrendered to God. Boy, do I know this story. Right? Anger just leads us to sin. If we don't actually have a real picture. By the way, the all caps doesn't really help anything. It just really doesn't. Like, you're not... I think at some point you have to make a decision and we all have to make a decision. Do we want to make a point, or do you want to create change, right? There's a lot of times where we can make a really clever point with our sarcasm or our share button, right? But do we want to make a point, or do we want to make a difference? And so Moses, in his anger, doesn't make a difference. 
He actually just becomes a murderer. And he has to flee. And he goes to a new town called Midian, right? That's where the Midianites live. That goes back to his great, 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 great uncle. Abraham had three kids. Ishmael, Midian, and then Isaac, right? And so he goes there. And these are, these are consi- not considered half-breeds. They're not Israelites. Like Israel, Israel hated these people. They didn't think they were special either because they had their own color skin, wrong pedigree, right? And so Moses can't even live in either land. He can't be with Israelites because he's an Egyptian, or they think he's an Egyptian, and the Israelites don't like him, but he can't live in Egypt anymore because he's a murderer there, and he had murdered Egyptians. So he's just in this nomadic place, and he ends up in Midian. And when he gets to Midian, he sh- uh, sh- comes into the town, you know, a well, and these ladies that are Midianites, they're getting some water, and um, these folks are, with their power and privilege and resources, are um, oppressing in many ways these, these ladies, and Moses gets angry again, drives them off, and so the ladies are able to get water. They go back, and they go back to their dad. His name's Jethro, really good name, I think, and um, goes to their dad and says, this Egyptian guy, he saved us. I'm sure, sure if he's Egyptian or Israel. He speaks one language, but he looks another. I'm not really sure, right? And uh, so he saves us, and then Jethro goes, well, why did you send him off? Like, he doesn't, he's a foreigner here, and we have power and privilege and resources, so we should invite him to the table, right? And so they go find Moses and invite him to eat with them, make the table bigger, invite the stranger there, and lo and behold, as um, he starts to spend time there, he ends up marrying the, uh, one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah, and now is living as a farmer in um, Midian, Midian without, uh, so he's not Egypt, he's not Israel, now he's living with these um, Arab people, right? And this is where we find Moses. Now, as he's doing all this, right, as he's living this world, still filled with anger and now um, anxiety and shame, all these things in this world, you would think this is a really interesting story. Nothing's really going to happen. And this crazy moment happens while Moses is out taking care of Jethro's sheep or his flock. So that's a long setup to kind of show with you where I'm going. Now, remember I told you there's a couple things that we have to respond to, these big things. One of them's uh, fear. Do think it makes sense. This is not part of the message, but I want to address it real quickly. Um, uh, Okay, what are we doing here as it relates to safety of our kids, particularly in the madness of this fallen, broken world, right? If there's not already, there's people who hate Christ, hate the church, and should we live in fear um, in our church? And um, how prepared do we need to be in the case of something really bad happening, right? Some of you had that fear and just want to um, talk about it real briefly. There's two things I would say, or one thing I'd say. I think there's, there's a responsibility for us to be prudent, but not paranoid, right? And we live in a world, because we like our control, where that prudence moves the paranoia really quick, right? Like, we don't need body armor, you follow me? Like, we don't need to order it on the internet and have all that stuff. Like, that's, that's, that's paranoia. That's not prudence. Prudence is being aware of what's going on in our property, being aware of the people coming in, being aware of what's happening in our parking lot, uh, being aware of what the procedures are in our kids' zone and what would happen in the case of fire. What do fire drills look like? That's, that's prudence. That's not paranoia, right? And so you're not going to walk through metal detectors here, right? Because our goal is to create a safe environment where God can do some transformative things, right? And if you have a bunch of metal detectors you're walking through, people aren't feeling safe, right? So part of our, our responsibility here is to create kind of an incubator, right? An incubator, incubator doesn't save kids. It just creates an environment by which kiddos can grow the way that God intended them to, right? And so we have a real responsibility as a church to do that, which is why one of the options on that board out front when we talk about serving and getting ready for the fall is security. 
And some of you, this doesn't mean we want you to be carrying a rifle on your back, but we do want you to be aware and be, and, and be prudent about what's going on here. So we create a safe place, make sure our kiddos are okay. So we're going to be prudent, not going to be paranoid. And if you're interested in that, sign up, put your name on the sheet, uh, write name on the front, hello, my name is. They're all out there on the back. Make sure to put your contact information, drop in that security, and Ben will be in touch with you this week to talk through it, okay? So we do have some fear that we got to deal with. We do have some control issues. We do have some anger we got to deal with, but we also need to be prudent through that whole thing. So there's the commercial and back to the message. And so we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 4, or chapter 3. So I just caught you up on Exodus uh, 1 and 2. Moses becomes a baby, grows up. Then he becomes a murderer. Now he's living in Midian. He's now married to Zipporah. And we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. You ready? Here it goes. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay? There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. You know, I don't know if you've ever walked around and seen a, a, you know, a, a, a burning bush that just happened to happen, but I would imagine that's something you pay attention to. So Moses pays attention to it, right? Um, uh, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the, uh, within the bush. Moses saw that the, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. That's really interesting, right? I would say that's kind of interesting on what we even see a sun. At some point, that's all got to burn up, right? But yet, here we are gathering the energy of it every single day, appreciating all that stuff, right? Getting our tans. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Makes sense. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. This is crazy, right? So this bush starts talking to him and calls him by name. Moses, Moses. And here's how Moses responded. Here I am. <laughs> This is strange. I wish I could be funny and tell you all about this. We don't have time, right? So get this weird incident where Moses is talking to a bush and his response is, here I am. Now you're going to see the same response throughout the scriptures. You've seen it with Abraham and Isaac. You're going to see it with Elijah and Elisha. This here I am means I'm ready. Ready for whatever you have, right? This is, this is a prepared statement. So he's saying to the bush, I'm ready for whatever you want to bring me, right? So we've got this really interesting going on. I'm ready. I'm ready. And so here we find ourselves, verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, a couple things I'll just point out real quick. Remember I was telling you about this creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I want to be really clear of what we're going to do over the next 15 minutes. I'm going to spend all my time and energy trying to convince you that your objective in life, what God wants for you is to receive redemption that he gives us, right, that free gift, and then give everything you got, all your time, all your energy, all your focus towards participating and restoring this world. So that's the objective here. Now, I'm even, I don't think I'm going to use any shame in trying to convince you of that, but the reality is this is why you're still here. Especially if you're a Christian and you didn't beam right up to heaven. You go, well, why in the world does God not do that? Why don't he just start the vacation earlier for us? Like, get us into eternity. The reason is this, restoration. So all of this focus is to convince you that you should participate in uh, transforming the kingdom, right? And you might say something like, well, I would if God would talk to me the way that he did Moses. I mean, if a bush were to show up and burn and then God were to speak and tell me here I am and take off my sandals, I would do whatever God said. No, I just want to argue with you. I don't think you would. I don't. I think we'd like to think that is because all we're really looking for is clarity. But you're going to see, even with Moses, that he, after all this experience, is still going to have a couple issues. One, with trusting God and being, two, being interested in his plan, right? 
Some of us aren't that interested in spending our whole life participating in the restoration of this world, right? You like your job, you like your money, you like your things, and the idea of bringing those into the kingdom isn't really interesting to you. And I would say Moses is in that same spot. So I don't think a burning bush is going to help you. But if it will, here's what I'll tell you. God wants you to give all your life, all your time, all your energy, everything you have. This is from God, okay? God wants you to give all those things to the kingdom every single day. God wants you to wake up every single morning thinking about how to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And God wants you to go to bed thanking him for what he did through you and ask him to help you sleep well so you can do the same thing the next day. All your time, all your energy. That's what God wants from you. He even says in the scriptures, he says, let your light so shine before men. Why? So that people can see your good work. Okay, great. And then glorify your father in heaven. God is all interested in people knowing who he is, knowing that he's a good father, and he wants you to spend every bit of your energy doing that. And I just would offer this for you here. We have lots of ways to do that. You heard about them last week. We have all sorts of stuff going on throughout the week, every single week. And we have a lot going on every single weekend, and we'll get busier in October. We have over 1,400 serving opportunities every single month. Our whole objective is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and for God to get all the, the credit, right? That's it. So one of the things I want to challenge you with is I don't know what God's calling you to do, but I promise you there's a place to do it here. So there's two different things we're kind of highlighting right now. One is, or three, all of our weekend service opportunities. You can go to the board, you can pray about them fast, and then respond quick by writing your name on one side, giving us your contact information on the other. We got work to do. We got a lot of work to do. Our world is broken. And God is bringing the church, to, he's inviting the church into being the solution for all those things. So we got lots of work to do. So I'd love for you to go look at the board and sign up. Sign up multiple times. And some of you are like, well, I've already done that. Well, if you're already in the middle of this, would you please make sure you put your name and information on that board in the area you already serve? Because it'd be really great for you all to see what's going on here. And there's something neat about us all serving together. And so one I'd offer, yep, God wants you to serve. Here's your burning bush moment. He wants you to put your name in that thing, okay? The second one is this. Um, not only do we have this weekend and weekday stuff, so there's all sorts of stuff. You can be a receptionist here during the week. You can answer the phone. You can help us park. You can be a part of the security team, right? But we also have kind of these big initiatives that happen fairly often. One of them for us, this is our second year doing it, is helping Lincoln University move in. Now, this is strategic. Most of you are white, right? Most of you are white people. And there is, there is a racial divide in our country. Now, you might say, it's not as bad as it used to be, and I'd go, who are you, who are you asking? So I'll tell you, I know some 17, 18, 19-year-old black boys who would say, I am afraid to get pulled over by a cop. And you go, well, that's silly. Well, it's real to them. And there's some data to explain why they feel that way. So there is a complicated world, and it's hard if you have power and privilege like I do to understand what that world's like. Like, I am not worried about my kid turning 16 and getting a car and driving. I'm not worried about the first time he sees blue lights behind him, right? If you're African-American and you have a 16-year-old, that's one of your biggest fears, right? I mean, it's, it's just a real part of our world. And the only way we get to understand this is we start talking to people who don't look like us and hearing the stories and understanding those stories matter to God. And so this is very strategic to go. The first historically black college in the nation happens to be less than five miles up the road. It would make sense that we would engage in opportunities to serve and care. We have power, we have privilege and resources, and we should help people with those, that power, that, those privileges and those resources. So therefore, there's two things coming up this week. One, Cal, that's Connect on Wednesday, starts back this, uh, this Wednesday. 
but it's not here. At 5.30, we'll be in the student building at Lincoln University. What we're going to do is we're going to put together lots of care packages for every single one of those freshmen. You're going to be able to put together a package, you're going to be able to pray over it, and you're going to even be able to write a note card to them. Tell them that you're praying for them. Tell them that you're in their corner. You can even, a double dog dare you to do this, put your cell phone number on there and say, if you have a flat tire, if you need something, if you need to do laundry at my house, if you need anything, right, feel free to call or text me, right? And so we're going um, to do that, not because we're trying to grow our church, but because we're trying to build bridges into our community. So Wednesday night, we'll be putting together care packages. We'll have pizza at 530. We'll put together care packages a little after six, and then we'll do a prayer walk through the whole campus. Now, do you understand this? Lincoln University, that it's not a Christian school, is inviting a church in to walk over every step of every square inch of their campus if we want to and pray for God to have his way on that campus. The school was inviting us to this. The president, the dean of students, they're inviting us into this. So I want you to do those things. And then I want to be really candid here. Uh, we, uh, six days from now, we'll be moving them in. And it's hard work. It is hard work. And some of it's thankless, Right? But we get the opportunity to help move furniture upstairs and hand out bottles of water. And it will take 100 people to do this well. And you can either sign up. There's a place to sign up. Please, please sign up for an hour or two. Help us keep up with inflatables there. Hand out water. Do registration tables. Or, if you're so brave and bold, use your back to carry furniture upstairs. Um, Students are still talking about this experience last year. We're in it for the long haul. This is a long game of building relationships here. And so please, please, please do whatever you can to make room for us to be able to do that next Saturday. You can see all the options out there on the board under Link University or on the website. So that's your burning bush. Okay, here goes. Then he says, don't come any closer. I just would offer that. That's about as much as we can get from God because we can't see God face to face. Like we can't, we couldn't see his glory, couldn't experience it all. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Remember, this is God's providence. He sees all things. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. So he sees and hears, and I am concerned about their suffering. That's the heart. He has compassion for it. So he's seeing what's happened to the Israelites. He's seeing their oppression. He's seeing what's being done to them, and he is moved with deep compassion. You see this? God is moved with deep compassion about the injustices in our world. God is moved with deep compassion about people who are homeless struggling with addiction. Uh, God is moved with compassion about people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And not only is he moved with compassion, he's actually working in it. And the crazy thing is the way by which he's working in it is through people like you and me. That's his solution to those problems. Us, right? And so, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So he's going, I'm coming to rescue them and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So he's giving us a vision of the kind of place that God has for these oppressed people. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So he's going, I am going to rescue them. I'm coming down, is what it says, to rescue them. And you go, oh, that's really neat. How exactly are you coming down? Like, are you going to hop in a car? Like, is it, you know, just going to beam yourself there? And he's going, no. The medium by which I'm coming down is actually through people. Watch this. So now go. See that? That's an action word from Moses. Go. That's actually active. That means there's a plan that you have to do, right? Go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God says to Moses, I'm going to rescue them. So you go. Wait, wait. God, you said you're going to rescue them. Yeah, yeah. Go. No, no. God, God, you said you're going to rescue them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why are you telling me to go? You should go. And God's going, I need you to go, and I'm going with you. I want you to go, and I'm going with you. No, no, God, you, you said you'd rescue. Exactly. The way that I rescue is through my people. 
So this is the picture of God's redemption, right? And the way by which he brings this good news and brings these resources is he gives people power, he gives people privilege, he gives them people resources, he says, go and drag people out of the pits of hell then, right? So no go. But Moses said to God, right, fear, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Okay, maybe this is humble at first. You're going to see me make lots of excuses later. And maybe that's what you feel. Who am I? Like if you knew my whole story, I'm going to, I know your whole story and mine's worse than yours in terms of the thoughts and sorrow and messiness of who I am, right? So if you knew my whole story, you would, God wouldn't want me. No, no, no. God wants you. And he goes, God, Moses says to God, well, who am I? Like I'm not capable. And watch what God says here. And God said, I will be with you. Remember? You go. I'm going with you. So like, yeah, yeah, I don't need you to be capable. It's not really about you. It's about me. You just get to help. Remember, you're the, you're the kid helping the dad on the project. It's not really about how competent you are. It's more about the, the connection you have to me, right? And God said, I'll be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Remember, I'm going to bend this and shape this for your good, Moses, and for my glory. At the end of this, people are going to give me credit. They're going to be amazed at who I am. They're going to see me as a good father. Moses said to God, Okay, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what should I, what shall I tell them? Wait, I don't know. Wait, if they ask me who sent me, what do I tell them? It's really good. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay? He says, Okay, what do I tell them? And they go, Tell them I am who I am. By the way, uh, that, that word in the Hebrew is hayah. You want to try it with me? Hiya! No, no, you don't have to. That's fine. But that's literally what he's saying here. God, he says, "Who do I tell? Who do I tell him who sent me?" And God goes, "Tell him, Hiya!" That's <laughs> so awesome, right? And so this Hiya, and what he's saying here is, "I am who I am, not who you think I am, not who you want me to be, not who someone created me to be. I am." who I am, meaning I am the self-sustaining God who always was, who spoke the world into existence, who created it, and even though you continue to walk away from me, continue to have compassion and draw you back. That's who I am, right? So he says that to them. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I say? God says, I am who I am. I am who I am. Right? And so continue. And God said, also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name of you shall call, name you shall call me from generation to generation. So he goes, okay, what, what do I say? And he says, tell them that the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, he sent you. There's two things that that points out to. This is God's covenant. Remember the promise I made to Abraham, it still exists. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. And call them by name, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they know they're really messed up people too. And they go, oh, God uses messed up people, right? These are, these are broken people. So you see God's covenant. You see God's grace. Um, go and assemble the elders of Israel, say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I've seen what has been done to you. And so you see all this happen. And I have promised to you to bring you out of misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, all these different places. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are going to the king and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews has met us. So he goes, okay, I'll do that. And then you see in the beginning of chapter four, he goes, well, but what if they don't believe me? And God does some really interesting stuff. He first says, hey, 
uh, take that staff. And so Moses has a staff, and he says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And literally it says, Moses ran, which is awesome, because that's what I would do, right? And he says, now pick it up. He picks it back up, and it turns back into a staff. And he goes, if they don't believe you, do that magic trick, right? Just make sure to say, Abraka Yahweh, before you do it, right? And so that's the first one. Then he says, if they don't believe that, here's your next one. Stick your hand in your cloak and pull it out, and it'll have leprosy on it. Ah, and they'll put it back. Okay, ah, right? So, you know, it's like that. Look, take off your finger and put it back. God's like, I got one of those for real. You're going to have leprosy, and then you're going to lose leprosy. So then he gives them that one, right? And he goes, no, God, that's not enough. Like, what if, there's, what if that doesn't work? And he says, okay, the last one. This is a really good one. Go dip your water into the, dip your basket into the Nile, grab the water, and dump it out. And he does it, and it turns into blood. And he says, that one's crazy. They can't do that. They don't have food coloring yet. They won't for thousands of years. Now, they have some red berries. They might make, look like red water, but it's not the same. Now, stick it in there, right? Look at that hemoglobin, right? So you got all this stuff going on. And so Moses goes, okay, okay, God, okay, okay. And so he gets all these different things. And then after God gives him these three pieces of ammunition, you would think, okay, God's showing himself. He spoke to them. He's given them all these tools he needs. You would think that's all you need, right? That's all you need. Instead, what happens instead is verse 10 of uh, Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Okay, you're talking to God, and God gives you all these tools. You go, no, 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 here's the last excuse, right? We got them. So you're not signing up on time, on those things. Who am I? I can't do those things. He literally comes back and says, I can't do it, God. Here's why. Pardon your servant. Verse 11, God answers pretty interesting. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings mouths, right? Where did those come from? Who gave them mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Hey, I created all this. I am with you. Do you not believe I will take care of you? And that's the, the crux of it. Do you not believe God will take care of you? Do you not believe God will sustain you? No, go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. There it is again, action word. Go, and I'll help you teach, and I'll help you uh, know what to say, teach you what to say. And then verse 14, he says this. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. So you see in verse 13, he goes, no, God, I can't, I can't, I can't. And you see God's response. The Lord's anger burn with Moses. You go, whoa, 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 that's really interesting. That God is all loving, he's all gracious, he does all sorts of things. Why is he angry? Why is he angry? God shows up, gives him all the tools. Moses says, I can't. God says, yes, you can with me. And he goes, no, no, I can't. I can't. I can't. Like he's literally going, he's literally looking God in the face and telling him no. Right? He's saying no to God and it says God's anger burned against him. I would pay attention anytime you see God get angry in the scriptures, it's probably really important to notice and go, okay, what is it that this guy's doing? Because I probably shouldn't do that. Right? And it says his anger burned. And I really, really thought about that last, this whole week and just dealing with my own drama and my own mess and not being very good at uh, always doing the right thing and just all that kind of stuff. And I'm going, why is it that I can't always do what God tells me to do? Like, every time, I tell you this all the time, I never, ever regret, never regret, have I ever regretted doing what the Bible says. And yet, there's days I don't feel like it. So I'm going, why is that? Because it makes God angry, right? So what is it? What is it that Moses did? And here's what I think it is. I don't know which one it is for Moses, but I think it's the same for us when we tell God no. Right? There's, there's a big difference between being unwilling and being incapable. Right? You know this, because when your kids tell you they can't clean their room, what are they really saying? I don't want to. I don't care. 
I can't, right? You hear this, I can't all the time. I can't tie my shoes. I can't make my bed. I can't eat vegetables, right? What are they really saying when they say they can't? They're going, I don't want to. There's a big difference between being un- incapable and unwilling. And so when Moses is saying, I can't do this, God, because I can't speak well, he's not saying he can't. He's saying he doesn't want to. And so what it's indicative of, what it's indicating for Moses, and definitely for me, is one of two things. Either I don't trust God, right? I don't trust God. I don't trust that he's actually going to do what he says he's going to do. I don't trust that he's going to sustain me. I don't trust that he is actually the one who provides for me. I don't trust that. I trust myself. So either it's because I don't trust God, or I'm not really interested in the things that God's interested in. I don't really care about the students at Lincoln University because they're not my family, right? I don't care about the people all the way across the globe because they don't talk like me, they don't look like me, and I don't even want to think about them. I don't care about the homeless people because I got enough problems of my own in my own day to pay my own mortgage, right? I don't have the same compassion for those people as you have, God, right? So it's one of two reasons, either because we don't trust God that he's actually going to sustain us, or we don't even believe he's real, right? Or we don't really care about the things God cares about. And those things enrage God. And you go, that's really mean of God. No, it's not mean of God. Remember, God is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And he has given you keys to the j- jail cell. And he's going, unlock yourself. Right? And you know this. You've seen all the Disney movies. You've seen all the times that the animals get stuck in cages. Rio, you know, Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians. You remember what happens? One of the animals gets freed. Then what happens? Think about it. Every single time, what does that animal do? It goes and opens every other cage. Every single time, right? Galatians, it says, it's for freedom Christ has set you free. It's for freedom Christ has set you free. He has freed you for the sake of other people. He's given you, you know, relief from oppression so that you can use your privilege, use your power, and use your resources to unlock other cages, right? And so God is angry at us. One, because his solution for our broken world is to restore it through his people. But the other reason he's really angry is because that's actually what you're wired for. And all the pain and all the sadness and all the disappointment in your life is directly tied to you trying to find fulfillment and joy in things that aren't what you're wired for. There is original design that God wired you for. And nothing will satisfy you outside of that. You were wired to participate in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. You're wired for these things. And you will not be satisfied until that happens. So there's this duality happening in this that God so wants Moses to participate because that's what he was made for. And that's where he'd be fully alive. And God so wants Moses to participate because that's a solution for freeing everybody from bondage and slavery. The reality is, I don't have to tell you, our world's enslaved. Briggs was talking to me about Harriet Tubman and um, we was talking about this quote that floats around the internet. I think Kanye West shared it once and it's attributed to Harriet Tubman. She didn't actually say it because she wasn't this prideful. But she said, I freed, a th- uh, the, the, the quote goes like this, I freed a thousand slaves and I would have freed another thousand if they were to realize, if they realized they were enslaved. Right, this idea that all of us are enslaved to our addiction and our pride and our control. And the reality is God so wants us to participate in this ki- kingdom and get out of that. And so how do you do that? particularly if you're afraid. And the band's going to come up on stage and we're going to sing a song. So how do you do that? How do you participate in God's kingdom? How do you do that in God's kingdom? And I'd say the biggest obstacle is your fear. And so I would offer this. What should you say to your fear? Here's what you should say. I am is with me. Or I'm not, as Louis Giglio says. I am not. I'm not capable. I am not. But I know I am, right? 
So there's this big picture that we think about all the time in terms of we shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. You know that, right? That's one of the, one of the um, Ten Commandments. That means don't put OMG unless you mean gosh, right, or whatever it is. And we kind of use goodness and gosh and these things because we kind of tread lightly on whether or not we should, we want to be careful of those words, right? And I agree, and I agree, and I think we shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. But that's not all that don't take the Lord's name in vain means. It doesn't just mean don't say curse words with God's name, right? When you think about it, when you think about taking a name, it means God is giving you his name. He is giving you his name. He is saying, wherever you go, I am giving you with me. I am with you. I'm giving you my name, meaning wherever you go, God goes with you. Don't take that in vain. So we, um, we got uh, stranded on the last day of our vacation because our airline canceled and canceled the flight. I think there's some weather stuff. So we were stuck for another day because they only had one flight out of Jacksonville and all sorts of anxious, all sorts of messed up. And I felt all sorts of anxiety about it and um, had to find another rental car, for, stay another day. And we ended up staying in Jacksonville, Florida for a day. And um, so on Thursday, we kind of stumbled across this place called Kingsley Plantation. It's an old plantation, an old slave plantation right on the coast between Amelia Island and uh, Ponte Vedra Beach. And and we went to it, and the guy's name was Kingsley, and uh, he, um, he had a huge plantation, had thousands of acres, and one of, the, one of his first slaves that he bought uh, from Senegal, uh, she, was a, she was actually a, a, a princess from Senegal, becomes a slave, and beautiful girl, and slave takes, uh, the, the father, uh, the, the owner takes advantage of her, gets her pregnant, until she has kids, right? Happens three times, so this guy, Kingsley, gets this lady pregnant, Anna, and the problem is, is because they don't have his last name, they're slaves. So they're, they're not seen as free people. And this is in the early 1800s. And so what ended up happening is the slave owner marries the slave, gets her out of slavery, and gives his children his last name. All sorts of broken. We're not celebrating the story of this Kingsley guy, right? But we do understand in this moment, the minute they got their dad's last name, what happened for them? They're freed. They're no longer slaves, right? They're no longer slaves because why? They're a child of their dad, right? And their white dad, the one with the power and the privilege and the resources. So when we think about that, the one with the most power, the most privilege and the most resources is God. And guess what he does? He gives us his name and he says, you're no longer a slave. You are my child. He gives us his name. So we don't take that name in vain. And we go with his name and no longer are we slaves to that fear and that control. Why? Because we're children of God. So either we believe that and we walk in that and we give our power, we give our privilege, we give our resources to those around us because we believe we're children of God. So we either walk in the fear or we go, go, no God, I don't believe any of that. And I'll just continue to hold on to my control, my power. And the reality is you don't really have power and you don't really have control. It's all an illusion. And so I would implore you, beg you to consider what it would look like to give all of me to God because I'm no longer a slave to that fear. I'm a child of God. And I want us to sing about that freedom we have in Christ. Would you stand with me as we conclude the service and song? deliverance from my enemy 
Till all my fears are gone Cause I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God from my mother's womb you have chosen me love has called my name I've been born again into your family your blood flows through my veins cause I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no child of God. 